Marion, uh, trying to tackle Romans 7, only to find out afterwards that um, the minister then uh, took a, the man who was a minister then took a very different um, approach to the, the passage. So it was interesting. And uh, it's, it's always interesting to have different approaches because that way we can maybe see uh, in fuller light or greater detail things that we'd not otherwise see. What's that going to do with this? Well, sometimes with John the Baptist, because of what we know of John the Baptist, we might sometimes think that John the Baptist can't actually be asking this question. You think of him, how long he's been a man of God and what he's done for the Lord and how much he's accomplished. Even to this point, he's now in prison where uh, Herod and uh, Herodias, you remember his the whole situation there, John the Baptist was rebuking Herod for uh, his sins, his wrong relationship, and the uh, end result was while Herod was afraid of John, he recognized he was a, a holy man. He was scared of him. There was something heavenly about John. Yet he was gotten the better of, as you know, and Herodias was used um, and then used her daughter to have John the Baptist executed. But when you think about John, you think about him as being, like we read there in verse 27, the quotation from the Old Testament, you think this is surely John the Baptist, being such a man of God, can't end up in, in a state like this, where he's having spent so much of his time proclaiming Jesus, preparing the way for him, to only now turn around and say, are you actually him? And it's natural, it's somewhat maybe easy to think, well, maybe, maybe John's saying this for the sake of the disciples. First thing we want to notice is confusion. We say this very respectfully, because you, you see anything, or see anything, or think of anything, maybe negative about some of these great men and women in the Bible, it makes you stop, doesn't it? Because you don't easily, we wouldn't easily want to say anything critical, and not being critical, but, but anything that would be negative is maybe the better way to think of it. John the Baptist being in a place like this. So we'd maybe assume that surely John's looking out for his disciples and he'll send the disciples with a question that he's asking for the disciples' benefit. That makes sense if we don't want to accept that maybe John's going through a really difficult time. I think he is, though. And it would seem that it's due, one reason anyway would be confusion. Confusion. Remember for just a moment how clear things were to John the Baptist, how clear they had been. In John's account of the gospel, he, he hadn't even um, physical recognition of Jesus I didn't know him, he said, apart from he who sent me said, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and abide. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so when that takes place, John becomes familiar with him. He's commended Jesus to his own disciples. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And uh, when the Lord was having more disciples than John, this is John, John the Baptist, John's gospel, John the Baptist's disciples, we're saying that Jesus is baptizing and having more disciples than you, as though that would upset John, or not that they're saying it to upset him, but that it might be, well, problematic. It's in John, why, why is this? Why is 
Why are the disciples going two directions? Who are we meant to follow? And John said that he rejoiced to hear um, the bridegroom's voice. And he said, this my joy is complete. He's there to introduce the bridegroom to the bride. He is there to prepare the way for Christ to come to redeem his church. And he knows it. But here he is now, in, and, and he's in a position, we take the words in Luke here literally, meaning John's asking the question. He's now asking the question of all questions. How could someone go from such clarity, clear thinking, clear perception, through divine revelation? The, the Father had shown him who the Son was. And so the baptism took place. John ends up in prison for his faithfulness. And here he is asking this question. But maybe put ourselves, if we can, in, in his position for just a minute. You ever been in a place where you've tried to understand, or I've tried to understand what God is doing. And the more we've maybe tried to understand, the more confused we've become. Well, that would be nothing compared to what John was going through, though. He had, I think, something of a view of what the messianic work would be, what the Lord's work was going to involve. And how many of the disciples believed that the Messiah was going to be this amazing? As you've picked, we picture him in, in, in Isaiah as, as a deliverer, as a conqueror to free Israel from Rome, oppression and bondage and tyranny and all of that, and to establish a global messianic kingdom. And when that wasn't happening, it would maybe would turn things in Judas Iscariot's mind. That's another one to think about. But when he, that is John, came to see the messianic work wasn't what he had expected. There he is in prison. We think, well, wait a minute, why say that? How do you know, you might ask, is it possible for us to know what John's thinking? Well, absolutely, the question. Is it possible to know what the question means? Well, look at the answer. And what Jesus sends John's disciples back with is eyewitness testimony that he is the fulfillment of the servant of the Lord in Isaiah. John the Baptist, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. This is John. Keep going, John. And by quoting, uh, well, it's not so much a quote, but in another way, you, you can find the references in Isaiah. Go and tell, verse 22 says, John, what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, dead are raised, and the poor of good news preached to them. It was a mission of mercy to begin with. The judgment is coming. You can think of the great Old Testament parallel to John the Baptist, Elijah. And Elijah went through a period as well, didn't he? Where he had wrestled with um, it was a darkness, a satanic oppression, Mount Carmel. And you can see the frenzy, the prophets of Baal are getting involved in, they're cutting themselves, blood flowing, self-harm, and they're doing everything to try and manipulate Baal to act and send down fire from heaven. And the way it happens, the Lord answers Elijah's prayer. You remember the account. But then when Elijah hears that Jezebel is after him, then... He, uh, he sinks and he flees and he seems, seems, seems to hide. It's not the Elijah we know about. And the Lord comes to him, you remember, speaking to him. And 
Elijah, and it doesn't seem like Elijah, because Elijah's a, a great man of God, and we think these men, these men would be, we'd think maybe, almost immune to struggles and sufferings and doubts and fears and questions. But James reminds us, you remember in the New Testament, Elijah, he was just a man like us. It's hard for us to say that about him, but he was. He had the same vulnerabilities, and he was a human, and, and there it was. He suffered. So the Lord gave Elijah rest and gave him food. Strange, is it, that that's maybe at the root of Elijah's problem. He was exhausted. Someone once came to Martin Lloyd-Jones, and as you know, having the benefit of him being a medical doctor, he had this way of analyzing without um, uh, maybe having to, having to look too far for a possible cause and then a possible cure. And this man came, he was really struggling spiritually, and um, he couldn't put his finger on anything. And what he was asked was, when did he last have a break? The man was burning out. And that was causing the difficulties in his spiritual life. We look for a spiritual problem or a cause. But sometimes we think of spiritual things as being non-physical. This is not to mean to confuse anything. But links in a chain or cause and, cause and effect. With Elijah, he needed to stop. He needed to rest. And he needed to eat. And when he rested and ate, he was then ready for the revelation from God. And when the revelation from God came... Elijah's no longer saying, I'm the only one left. See what's happening to him. He's saying, Lord, I'm the only one left. Lord is saying, no, there's thousands. But we could become blinkered when through Elijah's exhaustion and, and, and the, the exertion that took place in the, on that mountain with the prophets of Baal and the hope, it would seem, when he's praying, he's praying that the Lord would turn their hearts that they'd recognize that he is the Lord's prophet, not all of these, the prophets of Baal. When it doesn't work out, you can, you can maybe see what's going on with him. He's on a, a mountaintop experience, spiritually and actually physically, but he crashes after it. You know, when he says he hears the sound of the abundance of rain, he says to Ahab, the miracle's taking place. He tells Ahab to hurry up. Ahab gets in his chariot. Elijah outruns him. Thinking, this is amazing. Miracles. And then he sinks the next breath. So quick to go from a place of clarity and certainty and zeal and assurance to be rock bottom. Can you follow that? Maybe you're having doubts. Maybe you're scared to admit it to yourself or to anyone else. I don't know. But hopefully for our help to think, to think just now about this man's confusion. Firstly, in that sense that Things don't seem to have worked out the way he wanted. That's, that's a generalization. And maybe that's more the way we might think about it. Remember Psalm 73 with Asaph? He was like that, wasn't he? Looking at people's lives and how come wicked, ungodly, rebellious people are prospering in life and death? And when we try and be godly people and serve the Lord, he says, washing our hands, he said, I've done it in vain. He was really low. And what's happening, this isn't someone just feeling flat. This is someone who's going through a process of thoughts and feelings that are wrong. You can see how he gets there, but he's looking and seeing people are prospering in this life. 
despite how they're living and Christians and godly people are trying to be godly, they're suffering and struggling. It's maybe like my youngest saying to me the other day about the wars that, that are happening and you know, when the news is on and everything, and she said, well, why doesn't God just stop this? You know, when you think like that, if you or I, if we are in any way vulnerable, exhausted, then these kind of thoughts can come in and you can have what feels like uh, the rug pulled from under your feet spiritually and you're thinking, what have I got? Confusion. Things haven't worked out as I expected. Not so much as John the Baptist wanted, but with others expected. The Messiah hasn't done what we thought he would. To the point that he's asking, are you even him? Can you get into this mindset? That is really, really, this is on the assumption. I don't know what you think about that, that that this is John asking for himself, not for his disciples' benefit. But for someone to reach that place through confusion, things haven't worked out. God's providence is so perplexing, so confusing, so unfathomable. What are you doing? Are you actually the Messiah? We could stop there for just, and just leave things, just to think about that very question. For some, it might be shocking to think that John could say that. For others, it's a relief. But for all of us, it might at some time be a tremendous blessing to remember. It's coming to communion. It can come with many struggles, many doubts, many situations going on you try to figure out, and you can be here, and you only know what's happening. And it might be something happening on the inside, things that are going on, and you feel that you're not like the rest of God's people, or that um, you maybe uh, you don't want to, sh- to say maybe what's or to face even what's taking place. But the honesty, see, John brings this question to Jesus, doesn't he? That's what we have to do. It doesn't matter how. I mean, to, to be as to be as stark as asking, are you actually the Messiah, or do we look for someone else? There is a man who is really at the end of his thought process. But the second thing to notice, there's the confirmation. The Lord speaks in return and uh, tells the disciples, verse 22, to tell John what they've seen and heard. But before they go back to John, they have to witness the miracles. The confirmation, the Lord is saying effectively to John, yes, I am he, but this is what my work, this is what the mission initially is to do with John 3, 17. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The first coming, second coming. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world. Men love darkness rather than light. The judgment is coming. But after all of the healings, we're told in verse 21, he healed many of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, John's disciples, go and tell John what you've seen and what you've heard. And that amazing word in 23, blessed is the one who is not offended, doesn't fall, doesn't stumble, doesn't give up. That's maybe going a bit far with it, but... John's at that point, isn't he? He's really come to a a dead end. 
and he doesn't have a clue. And he's asking the question of his life. And the Lord sends that confirmation. You know, sometimes the answer he's going to give and the confirmation or the clear view he'll give, sometimes it's not what we're looking for. But it's always better, isn't it? The blessing will always be fuller. You think of Job and his struggles. And Job's asking questions. And at one point, you know, he says, Oh, that I knew where I might find him. God was, it seemed, a million miles away. Couldn't find God for all his praying, for all his crying, for all his wrestling and struggling. But he's saying, If I knew where I could find him, to paraphrase, I'd bring him into the dock. I'd ask him all of these questions and I'd plead my case because his friends are being so miserable. They're saying, Job, you've done something terrible. God doesn't judge people like you unless you've done something bad. It's like the disciples with a man born blind. Who sinned, this man or his parents, as though disability were a consequence of personal sin in every instance? But through Job's sufferings and his struggles and his wrestlings and his agonizing with God, God doesn't answer his questions, but God reveals himself to him. That is the answer. And that, I think, is what Job is saying. And you get these flashes throughout the book, but there are times where his faith reaches such tremendous heights when he's got nothing going for him. He's lost his family. He's lost his possessions. His wife is exasperated, and she's saying, curse God and die. We could be too critical of her, maybe some, maybe not, but... We think about what that poor woman was going through and the struggles and the confusion and the end of it, however, is Job says that. He said, I've, I've heard of you, but now I see you. So what God is saying and God is revealing to Job isn't necessarily the reason why, but he's revealing himself. And that is everything. I was going to sing it in the end in a few minutes, Psalm 73 that Asaph sung, and he says at the end of it, who do I have in heaven but you? And on earth, there's no one that I desire beside you. How did he reach that place in that instance? By coming to God's house. He was, he was so struggling with what was going on in his life. And com- I mean, what's amazing with Asaph, he was the appointed worship leader. So you can imagine him coming in, well, in our kind of context, um, fulfilling his calling and, and leading in praise and worship and composing the Psalms. And, you know, you'd look at him and you'd think, wow, there's Asaph, amazing, man of God. And so he was. But on the inside, he's going through a right struggle. The struggle of his life to the point that he says, I was like a beast. If I, had told the, if I had told people, this is a wisdom in not saying some things, but, you know, at the time, because there can be a raw kind of, well, yes, even bitter side to some of what we say when we're trying to figure out what God is doing. And it doesn't make sense. But he says, I was like a beast before you. The revelation came, and that's the blessing, isn't it? It's not nice to go through these periods or to have to experience these droughts and tests and trials and, you know, to have the questions of your life and to question yourself for having these questions. I can't remember which of the Boner brothers it was. 
But I remember coming across, uh, someone actually mentioned it. Yes, it was someone mentioned it. And you think of oh, this man had conducted a communion service. And coming out of the church, he, he said afterwards that he was battling, his language was, with atheistic tendencies. Imagine coming out of the communion, leading the communion service, and struggling and wrestling with the thought that maybe God doesn't even exist. It's a thought, isn't it? But it's through these awful experiences that clarity can sometimes come. And reality, spiritual reality, can become more real. That's what I think Job is saying, I, I heard of you. Before all this happened, I knew of you like secondhand. I, people had told me about you. But he said, now I know you for myself. Face to face almost. Confirmation the Lord gives. Send word back to John and assure him about what I'm doing. Tell him what you're seeing and give him that encouragement not to be offended because of me. The last thing, there's commendation. Can you imagine for a minute what people are going to think? You know, there's John the Baptist. There's his disciples. The disciples of Jesus will no doubt have heard about John the Baptist, know about his ministry. In fact, some of Jesus, the apostles had been John the Baptist's disciples to begin with. And um, for them to then hear this, think, what's happened to him? What's come over the man? I'm not saying that's what they were saying. But you could, and maybe we can ourselves, maybe we struggle to accept that John's actually going through this himself because he's John the Baptist. And anticipating that, when, when verse 24, when, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. I think this is not the assumption but of, of people's questions, but they're actually questioning, they're reasoning. Like later on, the Lord knows in, um, he knows what Simon the Pharisee is thinking. Yeah, Simon the Pharisee, verse 39, if this man were a prophet and then, Verse 40, Jesus answered him. So Jesus knows what Simon's thinking. He knows what's going on on the inside. He knows what's there. He knows things as they are. And in case you're thinking, you know, with coming to communion, we can think, maybe thinking of unworthiness. 1 Corinthians 11, eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. And I don't know if you do, but maybe there's, for some people, a struggle with feeling unworthy when that's not what he's talking about. That's not what Paul's talking about there. The, the, the unworthy is, I think, in the context, it's a not recognizing the Lord's body in the elements, being symbolized in, the, in the, the, the bread and the wine. We're never going to feel worthy. We shouldn't anyway. But that's why we, we remember him, his worth and his accomplishment. Doesn't mean we're we, we going to feel miserable and, and so on, but what I mean is, if you're feeling that kind of, but you don't know what I've thought about or what I've gone through, and you're maybe ashamed of maybe how you think God thinks of you, but they, there's nothing we can do or say or think that'll ever shock God or ever come as a surprise to Him. You know, when, when, when maybe well, you hear it in the press all the time. And they recently, when something comes out and then people who maybe knew beforehand, they, others are shocked and horrified 
and thinking this is like kind of a double life and so on. But in the, not meaning applying in any or thinking of that in relation to the Christian life, but on the inside, you and I, in our walk with God, there's nothing, there's nothing he doesn't know about. And there's nothing about us that'll, that'll, like that God will be taken by surprise with or think less of us because of. See what he says when John's messengers are gone. See the wisdom in that. John's not going to hear Jesus' commendation of him. Not are John's disciples. You have that in verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning him. And he turns with such authority and majesty. He knows what the people are thinking. What on earth is wrong with John the Baptist? So who did you go out to see? Why did you go to the wilderness when he was baptizing in the, in, in the Jordan River? Why did you go out there? Did you go out there to see a reed shaken by the wind? Did you go to see his soft clothing? Then you could see people maybe looking at each other thinking we know the way he dressed. You know, and that's the point. You didn't go to see him because of how he dressed. You didn't go out there to see a reed shaken by the wind. There wasn't some spineless, carried about by the wind kind of person, you knew fine what John the Baptist was like. Yes, he said, a prophet, verse 26, I tell you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. And then quoting these amazing words. Imagine being in the crowd and hearing that. Well, we are in a sense and we're listening to it. The Lord sees you for who you actually are. He sees you for who he's made you to be, what he's made you to be like. And he remembers that you are dust and that I am dust. He knows our frailties. Don't be ashamed of that. Don't be ashamed of bringing them to him and asking for help and even asking for peace and to find that your worthiness and my worthiness is not in ourselves. It's in him. And to reach that place, to come to that place where we actually rest completely in him. Now, that's not going to be an easy thing. It can sometimes involve having to remind ourselves often and, and read over things often and pray over things often. But when he tells us if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to believe that. You know, I had something yesterday as well at home that was... So I can say things because they're not here. Because when they're around and they, you know, you don't know who you're talking about, and even if you don't name them. But yesterday, my oldest boy was asking about, he was talking about something that's, well, it's not just a distraction, but he doesn't like school. He loves learning, but it's situations. And what he was talking about is, he, there's something with a timetable he can't stop worrying about because he doesn't know what's going to happen. As guidance teacher said, it'll be fine, we'll sort it out. And trying to tell him, you can stop worrying about that. You can stop yourself thinking certain thoughts. Do you believe that's possible? I don't know, your mind might be like mine, like all over the place most of the time. And then you forget things so often. And it's not a choice. Some people think it is, and you remember what you want, but... You know, it is possible. Remember someone saying that it is possible for us to control our own thoughts, meaning 
when we start thinking a certain way, we can stop ourselves thinking another way or put it a different way. Psalm 103. We need to speak to ourselves sometimes. Why are you cast down? Why are you disquieted in me? And you challenge yourselves and say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to praise the Lord. It doesn't mean I'm, everything's going to work out. We say, you know what, I'm going to do this. Psalm 74, the psalmist reminiscing the past and asking, of course the conclusion's wrong, but the problem, because, because this, everything was so terrible, Psalm 74, really difficult times. As the Lord cast us off, has his mercy failed, has his truth gone? And he said, no, he said, I'm going to remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I'm going to re remind myself of what God's done in the past. I'm not going to try and live in the past or try and resurrect the past. But he is the God of every generation. He is our God forever and ever. And in that sense, it's to stop ourselves and say, I'm going to think about what is, you know, isn't it? I think it's in, um, I think it's in Philippians. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are pure, and so on and so on, think on these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, that's not easy. If you're an anxious person, if you're a worrier, and he says, do not worry, do not be anxious, you're thinking, well, we've got to believe that it's possible. Let, do not be anxious about anything, Philippians are told. But in everything, so there's how to work this out. Do not be anxious about anything. means anything, everything. Totally nothing should worry us. You know, Dad, they do worry us. I don't know if you're a worried, an anxious person. It's, it's almost, well, it, 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 it almost sounds, almost seems like a mockery to say, look, don't worry about it. Because you're a worrier. You're geared that way. The way to handle that, he says, is but in everything, by prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then he says this, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind through Jesus Christ. It's like having a garrison in your mind, God guarding your thoughts, bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The Corinthians are told that. Every thought a captive. <laughs> Is it possible? Well, it's our aim. It's to be our aspiration. To bring these thoughts. And isn't it, um, Peter talks about it, the, to, the old Bible puts it, to gird up the loins of your mind. It's like, get a grip on our thinking. A real hold on where our minds are going. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Greater than a prophet. Of those born of women, verse 28 says, none is greater than John. Then his rebuke. We'll finish. Think of his rebuke. The Lord turns to the generation of the people. And, you know, he's talking to these people about, about John. What did you go out to see? What do you think of him? Who is he? And then he turns to them and he's basically saying, it doesn't matter what game we play. It doesn't matter what song we sing or tune we play. You're never happy. Play funerals, you're not happy. Play weddings, you're not happy. What is he meaning? Well, he said that John the Baptist came neither eating 
nor drinking wine. And see, he's got a demon. He's just an outcast. He's, there's something. But then the Son of Man comes and he does eat and he did partake of wine. And they call him a, a friend of tax collectors, sinners, a drunkard, a glutton. So he's saying, look, it doesn't matter. You get one. And that's religion, isn't it? A works mentality. Never happy. Never satisfied with what anyone else would do. But the Lord, you know, when he's saying that to them, there's people who know the difference. And they are the tax collectors. They are the sinners. They are the people who aren't the religious elite. And we're saying that they're glorifying God. Their hearts are bursting with joy because they're hearing Jesus talking about them. Wisdom is justified of her children. People who experience real wisdom are able to give their amen when they hear it and when they see it. It's justified. It's declared right. And they say amen. So we're hearing about a friend of tax collectors and sinners We're hearing of the one who comes and, God willing, we'll see in the morning, goes into a Pharisee's house, Luke 7, and a conversation takes place in the presence of a truly amazing show of adoration of Christ. There's a religious man, very religious, a Pharisee, and he's looking down his nose and he's condemning Jesus, he's condemning the woman, he's condemning condemning everyone but himself. But the Lord knows Your heart, he knows my heart. And as we think about remembering him, let's remember where John the Baptist went. And he didn't even know if he was the Messiah. Don't know what you're thinking yourself. Life, struggles, joys, blessings. Isn't that question, what do you think of Christ? What do you think of him? What does he mean to you? We better stop there. We'll we'll pray, shall we? Let's pray. Lord, our God, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy that have followed us to this day. You've put up with us so much. And we thank you that you tell us that you don't deal with us according to our sins. And that because you are the Lord and you do not change, we, the children of Jacob, are not consumed. So, Lord, have mercy on us. Lift your face to shine on us. Give light, Lord, where there's darkness and how paralyzing and anesthetizing spiritual darkness can be and the gloominess and the heaviness and the weight and at the same time the joy, the light, the liberty of the Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, for that freedom and for that clarity and to be delivered from doubts and the shackles that all of these things can bring to us. And that we'd have clear views of Jesus, the man at your right hand, who you've made strong for yourself. Lift our eyes to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. May we rest in him and discover more of what that means. When you're showing us ourselves, we shudder at the sight and we thank you for one who is absolutely perfect in every, in every way. We thank you for the work you've done in all our hearts, the hearts of your people, where they can say that they know who they've believed in. So, Lord, meet us, we pray. 
each one in Jesus' name. Amen.